Flannery also said, if I can extract the meaning from a story into a sentence, it's not a very good story. The story is the meaning. The whole, it's the whole thing, you know, and because and, it's the experience of seeing through another person's eyes. It's that vicarious life that you live through a character and it's the empathy that's born within that. listening to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and leave a good review and share our little podcast with your friends. My guest today is writer-director Scott Teams. Scott is an Act One alumni and Georgia-born filmmaker whose upcoming projects include Universal Blumhouse releases, Halloween Kills, which he co-wrote with David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, The Exorcist, another collaboration with Green and McBride, and Stephen King's Firestarter, which he adapted for the screen and will executive produce. Scott adapted another King property, The Breathing Method, which is in development with Spyglass and director Gore Verbinski. And he wrote the upcoming sequel, Insidious 5, for Sony Blumhouse and director Patrick Wilson. Scott also penned the adaptation of Abraham Verghese's best-selling novel, Cutting for Stone, for Braun Studios, Anonymous Content, and director Richie Mehta. Scott's previous credits as writer-director include the award-winning films That Evening Sun, Holbrook Twain, and most recently, The Quarry. Scott was a writer and co-executive producer of the popular Netflix series Narcos Mexico, and he wrote, directed, and produced three seasons of the acclaimed Peabody award-winning Sundance TV drama Rectify. Scott is a good friend, and I think you will get a lot out of our conversation. Enjoy. Scott Teams, welcome to the Act One Podcast, man. It's really good to see you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I just uh, want people to, to know about you and know about your work. A lot of people already do, obviously. You're a, you're a um, uh, of course, an Act One alum. You're a writer. You're a director. And uh, a father and a husband and <laughs> all those other things too, and um, but I'm just excited to spend some time with you today. I I think you always every time I have a conversation with you, I feel like I always come away having learned something. You you That's have good. a you have a professorial uh, way about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's all an act. <laughs> um, but no, I and I mean that in the in the kindest way, in the sense that I feel like you're very generous. Um, well, with um, just the things I think that you're learning and uh, not only about just the craft and um, but of course, just faith and all kinds of um, all the stuff that surrounds all that. So thank you so much for being a part. Of it. I, I want to yeah. start off uh, if we can, let's um, let's go ahead and kind of start back a little bit towards the beginning of your journey. And because um, yeah. I know you are a, you are a classic writer director. You are someone who both, uh, um, is someone who writes and directs and, mm-hmm. um, where did that passion and love and interest in being a writer director come from? It's pretty classic sort of, sort of, you know, story that you've heard, which is the kid who had the video camera in his hands and who just wanted to make movies from as early as he could remember. That was me. Um, my dad was, uh, what we would call today an early adopter. We, that wasn't a term back then, but we had like the first VCR on my block, the first 
video camera on my block. Um, the, the problem was my dad would never then get anything else but that first version of the thing. So we, <laughs> you know, when I was, so we had a like a black and white video camera in 1980 or whatever. And we still had that same camera 15 years later when I, you know, got out of high school. So, um, uh, and we had this like VCR. We had a, our first video camera, in fact, was corded, was corded to the VCR. Yes. So yes. You can only go like 10 feet away from the VCR. And so every video, <laughs> Every home video is like in from my living room with the camera 10 feet from the VCR and the TV, just shooting across, like, you know, painting around the house, waiting for people to walk through the room. Um, but I just, I just, when I got it in my hand, I just, just felt good. I just liked making movies. And then I had a couple of teachers early on who really encouraged that. In particular, this, my teacher in the eighth grade, her name was Carol Harrison. And uh, she let me make little movies in lieu of book reports. I made four or five little movies that year and just started learning how to use the camera. And I would edit, you know, VCR to VCR or in camera or whatever. And just started doing it and um, really caught on and then um, pursued that off and on through high school. I played a lot of sports, so I was more involved in that. But um but then I went to film school and I, uh, I went to a school with a film program, I should say, and, uh, and studied film in college. And it's all I ever wanted to do. And, you know, much to the chagrin of my folks who I think would have rather me pursue a quote unquote real degree. But uh, I, I just, that's all I wanted to do. And it was my heart and my passion. I studied film history and film theory in college, which was really huge because everybody wanted to, do production and film school everyone wants to do production i'm gonna go shoot and i just got really interested in film history film theory and ended up being very fortunate for a number of ways i mean having that background is so vital i think to really um deepening yourself as an artist as a filmmaker um and just spending that time, that dedicated time in film school to watch all those movies and just spend all that time talking about them was really important. Secondly, like starting in the 90s when I was in school, that's really when um, digital production really began, the end of the 90s. Um, and so from that moment on, uh, technologies were being, uh, were becoming outdated within a year or two years, whatever. And so we were shooting on 60 millimeter and cutting on film decks like in in 95 and by 99 we're you know we have a my school had the first like fully digital post center in the country in a, in a college and so um you know it was like everything you learn in shooting was like kind of out the window because you had a whole new technology coming down the pike so i just think it's so vital and important for for young filmmakers and writers to uh, study film history and understand film theory and the craft. That's where the craft really began for me. Um, you know, I got out of college and moved straight to New York. I'm from Georgia. Uh, so I went to school in Georgia, got out of school, moved to New York, got married, and just lived in New York City for five years. And for me, that was a huge step. That was really, that's another really important thing, I think, is to leave to mm -hmm. get out of your comfort zone, to mm -hmm. go away and to, because it really, to me, it really um, put my feet to the fire. Um, when you go to New York City, 
A, going to New York or LA, there's a community there. And of course, now communities are popping up all over the place and you can have online communities, of course. Um, but living amongst artists is really a valuable thing. Living in New York City was super valuable for me as a person in my early 20s, um, young, a young artist trying to become an artist. Um, it's like uh, also, shared, shared risk. Yeah. Shared like Shared everyone, risk. everyone, everyone's everyone's yeah. living in that kind of risky, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it's also expensive, <laughs> expensive as crap to live there. So <laughs> you you feel yeah. the money burning out of your pocket. And for me, coming from Georgia, that was a real sticker shock there. And so it makes you go, wow, okay, do I really how much do I care about this? Am I committed enough to really because every day felt like money's just burning? And so I wanted to really prove to myself and to my wife that I was committed to the work. I think there's a tendency, not for everyone, but there is a tendency if you stay where you are comfortable, that is either wherever your hometown is or whatever, you know, stay in a comfortable place that you have other options, you have backup plans, then my tendency at least is to take those and to go the easy route. And for me, it was really valuable to, to leave to separate, to be on my own. Um, you know, I was making $10 an hour selling women's shoes in Long Island City. You know, I was like scraping by. And, but that's where I met a core group of artists who are friends to this day. A lot of them live out here in LA now. And um, we began our journey together. And that's where I took Act One in 2001 in, uh, in, in New York City. And that was really a foundational experience for me because it was, again, it's 20 years ago, internet still relatively new, online communities, there's no social media. There was like, it was hard to find your tribe online, harder to find your tribe. And for me as a person of faith, and I came to faith in high school, really, I mean, I grew up in the church, but it really began to like make it my own in high school. Uh, through Young Life, primarily, and um, and for me, but I also realized for whatever reason, pretty early, like I, I had no interest in making anything that looked like Christian propaganda or Christian sort of art. Not that that's a thing, but like that just was it. It didn't. It, it didn't. I did not like to watch it. So why would I want to make it? Right. Sort of my where I came down. I wanted to make the kinds of films that I loved and I was touched by. And there were many films that I felt had deep truths about humanity, about spirituality, and, and all these things existed in the, in the in the quote unquote mainstream world. So why couldn't I make those two tell those stories also? So Act One for me was the first time I had encountered a group of uh, believers who also had those same goals, those shared goals. I, didn't, I thought I was a freak. I thought I was alone in the world. And, you know, and it's, um, and, and, and Act One really changed that for me. And so that was 2001 in New York. And that sort of helped me kind of, again, build, build my chops and, uh, and we, and we, you talk about this a lot when you come back and talk yeah. uh, at mm -hmm. act one. Uh, so, which is this kind of this rule of thumb, which I think is yeah. really yeah. practical sage advice that we yeah. continue to give. And that is you went yeah. through the program in 2001 and the, the time between 
basically when you started to really pursue a career full-time to when you actually um, essentially got your first paid gig. There was, there's yeah. a period of time there. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. It was, it's funny because I've for years and years attributed this to Chris and Kathy Riley. And I saw Chris Riley a little while ago, a couple of years ago. And I was like, I always tell people about this thing that you, you told us in act one. He goes, I didn't say that. And uh, so <laughs> I'm like, wait, was it Lee and Janet Bachelor? Maybe it was, but it was, some couple, screenwriting couple. So it was either those, it was either the Rileys or the Bachelors. I don't know who it was. Um, and they were teaching our class one day. And uh, I said, basically, and I had gone to New York, newlywed, thinking, all right, two, three years, I should under, I should know in two or three years, if, like, I'm going to have a chance at figuring this out or doing this, or I'll have an understanding of my talent level if it exists or whatever. And we'll know in two, a couple of years. And if we're not making it by then, then we'll go, we'll try something else. But I didn't want my wife to be sitting around waiting and, and like figuring out. I thought that was a, a pretty smart amount of time. And we, I went to Act One and they came in and they said, for everyone they know who has made it. And by making it, they simply meant makes a living as a writer. Um, that's their only job. For everyone they know and their community who's made it, almost to a person, it took on average about 10 years before when they really started pursuing it to when they lived on their writing. And for me, that was enormous. That was like the scales fell from my eyes and I go, oh God, this is a much longer journey um, than I thought. And so what that allowed me to do was to go home and talk to my wife and say, oh, okay. I really think this is actually going to be more like 10 years and not two years. Are we okay with that? Because that's really what um, is important are properly calibrated expectations. Expectations are everything in life in general. And so much disappointment and conflict comes from uh, improperly calibrated expectations. And, we, and you and I have both seen marriages fail out here or struggle at the very least because um, of that time, the timeline, of the amount of work it takes to make it in this industry and to tell stories. Um, and, and if both uh, partners aren't aligned in that vision and one of them starts tapping the watch going, okay, it's time to go back to Jackson or wherever they're from. And, and that just creates conflict. And so we were able to say, okay, 10 years, great. And my wife's an amazing adventurer. And she's like, let's do it. Let's go for it. And so, and my promise to her was simply, I'm not, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I make a living. I, I'll work, I, I will work whatever jobs I have to. I'm, I'm not going to sink the family pursuing this, but I'm going to continue to pursue it. And that means living in New York or Los Angeles. And she was like, great. Uh, and so that really was a huge deal. And um, so we lived in New York for about five years. And then about, we started saying, okay, let's, 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 let's challenge our, We are getting pretty comfortable there in a great community. Things were getting a little easier. I was making a little bit more money. I'd started like a little video production company making like corporate videos and stuff. Okay, what's the next? I felt like I needed a, a challenge. We had a kid, that was a challenge, but we also, I was, but financially and sort of creatively, I was looking for another um, push. And we said, okay, it's time to go to LA. So we moved to LA in 05 and we've been here ever since. And 
Um, and the capper of that story. And, and even I went and made a movie a couple years later, three years later in 2008, I made a movie, my first movie, that Evening Sun. And that got me a representation and it won festivals and whatever. But I spent five years working on that Evening Sun. I think I made $20,000, you know, independent film. It's a million dollar movie. You're not going to make any money on those things. That get me that get me uh, experience and they get me representation, but it wasn't until uh, 2011, 10 years after Act One, when I heard that advice. 2011 was the first year that I um, that I existed on solely on my writing, and uh, so it proved true for me, and I think it proves true for a lot of folks. It's it's uncanny, actually. It's actually yeah. uncanny the way that oftentimes, and obviously there's always exceptions to the rule, but it sure, but it is fast, it is fascinating to see. And and I think part of it is so much of this business does chew people up and spit them out. And yeah. and so much of working in this business is about persevering. It's just about it's about perseverance. So much of it. And I don't know if people who are interested in coming into the business truly understand that, you know, I'm sure everyone thinks they're the exception to every rule, right. but sure. it, it, it's the ones that persevere. Those are the ones that make the greatest impact in this business. They're the ones that have actual sustained careers. And yeah. the lesson from that is um, uh, if you know that you're impatient now, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, work on it, <laughs> become, yeah. become more willing to persevere, you know? Yeah. I mean, the example they said in that class, when they gave us that 10 year thing was they said, if you can sit here in 20, 2001 and say in 2011, I'm going to make my first paycheck off a of script. And I'll say to you now, people listening, if you can say in 2031, I'm going to make my first paycheck as a writer if that excites you and does not seem like a long amount of time, then maybe you are cut out for this. Um, and that was really a daunting thing to hear. But um, what it does is it sort of, it, it separates those who really are want to tell stories and those who really just want to be in the movies or something. Yeah. I think there's a difference because like anything good in life, it, you don't really get it until you don't want it anymore. Like the, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. when I stopped chasing this ideal of what I thought the, the bonuses, the perks that came along with all this life, um, you know, it, uh, uh, as long as I wanted it, then I, it didn't, it never came to me, you know? And, and of course there's time, not, there's still times that you crave it and you like it. We're all human beings. Um, but it's just, you know, my sort of the next wave of sort of me establishing myself and having some success sort of came when other things ultimately became more important than that family and whatever. You know, um, you know what it was, you know what it was for me, Scott, was uh, someone asked, I, I can't remember even who asked me this question, but someone asked me the question not too long after I had been out here and they said, is it that you just like watching movies or, or do you actually want to make them? And I thought that was the most, that was the most clarifying question for me Yeah, yeah. because I, I, it caused me to take a step back and go, yeah, that's a legitimate, it, it could be both, you know, sure, um, of course. but if it's, it's both. but if it, yeah, you hope it's both. Right. But if it's, but if it's the former and, 
more than it is the latter, then yeah, it's not why waste time? Like, let's just go go do it something. It ain't easy, else. man. It ain't easy, and you sacrifice a whole bunch, like anything worth worth doing. But it's hard as hell, man. And and there's a lot, a lot of years of waiting around for things to happen. And um, you know, it, it's it's um. So I have a my first studio movie coming out next week or you know on the 15th and um that's you know and i've had it done a lot of television and i've made independent films but my first sort of studio movie that i wrote is being released and that's 15 years and i'm going to have about five movies come out in the next two years but that's wow. after 15 mm -hmm. years of no movies so yeah. it's like i mean my little movies but no. You know, and I'm not to discredit them, but in terms of just like, you know, really sort of being able to penetrate through to a large audience. And I worked on this wonderful show, Rectify and Narcos, and I've had great experiences. Um, but being able to punch through that next level took a long time. And then when it happens, it seems like it happens all at once, like an overnight thing. <laughs> but but of those five movies, some of them I wrote 10 years ago. I wrote five years ago. You know, it's like it's just they've been accumulating. And they just happen to all be getting made at the same time, basically. Um, but that's a lot of just years of working on relationships. It's a lot of years of making, writing a lot of things that didn't get made. Um, you know, and this, but because I, it's all I want to do. Yeah. And if I was banking on getting these things made to feel good about myself or whatever, then I was like, I would, it's too hard. But I just, I just want to tell stories and it's all I desire to do it. So, you know, I think it's a lot like ministry in the sense that, you know, someone once said to a friend of mine who was going to seminary, like if there's anything else in the world you could do as your vocation and feel satisfied, do it uh, because this is too hard. Yeah. And that's what I feel about telling stories, um, you know, and uh making movies so it, it's really hard yeah. uh, i think it's worth it i think it's uh, otherwise and, and you have to want to tell stories i think the other part too is if i just wanted to you know to like you know blow crap up and like and have <laughs> and see people jumping off buildings and yelling gung-ho then i i wouldn't have made it either because I believe deeply in this, what I'm trying to write about, and it may not make it through. They may not get made, but I believe I'm trying to tell stories that have substance and have value in the world. That's what my heart's desire is. I don't want to entertain people, but I want to do both too, you know? And so I want to, and that's what sustains me. It's like being able to have to know that the thing I'm trying to do has value. Uh, otherwise I think it's, it's, you know, why are we doing it? You know, so. who are, who are some of your creative influences you were talking about you know little scott running around with his camera 10 feet yeah. from the vcr so even from back then all the way to kind of now like who do you yeah who are some of your greatest um creative influences back then it just seemed so um back then I, my, my influence was pretty broad i think just as simply as they are in a suburban kid in america in the 1980s um but it was more about it was less about specific people influencing me and just more about falling in love with movies and i fell in love with the with the grandeur and the and the fantasy of movies of course whatever spielberg and um you know and and 
the Goonies and all these movies in the 80s that were are seminal films that were certainly important to me. But in high school is when I turned and began to like see things a little differently and began to get into independent film, began to see, um, I began to really, really reach into like European cinema, foreign films, and uh, just began to open up the palette and expand the vision a little bit. And that's where I started really getting into uh, and connecting with filmmakers. And then it, that really blossomed in college. And um, so for me, and that coincided with uh, my growing love for Southern fiction, uh, being from the South, Southern writers that, um, were much more prominent than Southern filmmakers. And so that's one reason I wanted to make movies too, is that everybody wants to tell stories about where they're from or they want to see themselves and their culture represented on screen. I wasn't seeing any, a lot of really great stories about the South. Every now and then one would pop up every now and then you'd get a, you know, um, uh, sling blade or, um, uh, Tender Mercies, Texas movie, you know, but, um, and my favorite Southern movie growing up was Deliverance. Uh, you know, as a Georgia person, that is a, a, a book and a movie I hold dear to my heart. Um, it's very, it's an incredibly timely, even now story. So it's an, it's unfortunate that the film has been reduced to kind of a punchline, you know, squeal like a pig. And the movie is such a deep, in the book, deep exploration of masculinity. Yep. Yep. Um, and um, and it's very moving to me. And uh, and I, I I that's always been an inspiration to me. James Dickey, the writer, um, but Flannery O'Connor pretty quickly emerged, especially in college, as sort of my my kind of hero, ultimately. Um, and along with. G.K. Chesterton and Frederick Buechner are sort of my literary heroes of faith. Um, and, uh, but, but as a Southerner, Flannery, just she, her works penetrated me and, and, um, and her, uh, her perspectives on craft were really valuable to me and formed some of the foundations of how I still operate today. Um, you know, it's not just the story you tell; it's the way you tell the story. That's 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 unity of form and content. Is her way of talking about unity of form and content, which is the basis of all great art. And in film, we actually have the a real way to do that. It's actually we do have the form and the content, and the form and 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 that's what one thing I really try to preach to people is like, if you are working in film and television, then you have to utilize sound and visual you have to it's not just about dialogue it's not it's it is and it's not just about filming the action it's about having a perspective on how you um create and tell this story it's it's the form it's the use of the camera what is the camera doing it can add things it can tell another layer it can make the art multi-dimensional and that is how you unify form and content and and that's just, and that creates then complicated, nuanced, subtle, deep, thoughtful, question-raising stories, which is, I think, the, for me, the true purpose of spiritual art is to raise questions, to ask penetrating questions. Um, Flannery also said, if I can extract the meaning 
from a story into a sentence, it's not a very good story. If I can tell you, if you tell me the stories about crime doesn't pay, I should just tell you crime doesn't pay and we can save ourselves all 10 bucks on a movie ticket, you know, like the story is the meaning, the whole, it's the whole thing, you know, and, and because it's the experience of seeing through another person's eyes, it's that vicarious life that you live through a character and it's the empathy that's born within that. That's the power of drama is its ability to help you empathize with others. I think it was maybe I I don't want to misquote. Well, I probably will misquote, but I think it was Barry Jenkins who um, had the great quote the other day that uh, films are empathy machines. Yeah. For us to sit and watch a film is to um, to understand you don't that's not agreeing that's not like we're not saying when you watch a Hannibal Lecter eat people you're not saying oh I suddenly think it's okay to eat people but there is something to the experience Uh, you do this in some of your films but you've done this in some of there is this thing the art of the gaze the art of the gaze the you you will uh, not only with the actor, with the long look, but also with your camera, with the lens, mm-hmm. um, setting a tone, setting a mood. You do this with both of um, That Evening Sun and The Quarry, which came out last year in the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, both great films, both wonderful, great independent films. And um, I really... See, that evening sun came out what year? What year did it win South by Southwest Audience Award? Uh, 09. 09. And then the quarry came out last year. And um, so they can, people can watch the quarry. I'm sure it's like on Amazon and play, right? They can, so can they find that evening sun? Yeah, right now it's on uh, Vimeo on demand only. Um, Getting it out other places soon, but uh, Vimeo on demand. They can they can watch it there. Can you talk? Twain is on the is on Amazon, Apple, all those places. Can you talk just a little bit about the visual storytelling and just kind of your passion for? I mean, the art of the gate, like just yeah, the setting tone and mood. Some of the choices yeah. that you've made as a director in terms of what w- the idea of, of um, placing an audience kind of in that space, not only visually, but emotionally and all that. Stuff. Yeah, it's often about contemplation. I mean, I think ultimately I want those movies, especially. And those are two. No, it's also cut out. It's also um, appropriate for the story. Those are two. Uh, stories that are take place in quiet environments. They're right. they're deliberately paced because the characters are going through sort of um, uh, tense con- contemplative experiences, um, or not contemplative in some cases, but just um, uh, long time long long bouts of waiting and and trying to figure out what to do next and how do you get out of this predicament i've gotten myself in um but it's tricky to utilize that contemplative gaze that you caught because it's um the story has to support it and i think the reason those stories can support it hopefully is because i've created hopefully i've created this like this like box of tension 
And what I mean by that is that both those films sort of set up with a, a bit of a hook, right? So that evening sun is an old man leaves a nursing home, goes back to his farm and discovers somebody's living there. So he moves into a little shack on the property and says, I'm not leaving until I get my farm back. So that sets up a conflict right there. You know where you're going. So you know already that conflict. I'm not leaving until I get my farm back. And the other guy says, well, I'm not leaving either. So that's going to lead to a conflict, to a conflagration, to some sort of blow up at the end of the movie, probably. So you know you're headed toward that. That creates an automatic sense of tension because we're headed towards something dramatic. So when that tension is that, then informing every scene, imbuing every scene. And so I don't have to do as much manufacturing of tension inside those scenes, meaning I don't have to create artificial tension. Oh, no, there's a, there's a truck rolling down the hill at me, whatever. It's like those scenes are loaded. So you can, you can have scenes, people talking, people looking, scenes of just Hal Holbrook sitting and staring, and it, which sounds boring to describe, but because you know he's contemplating how he's going to get out of this, how he's going to get this place back. But if it's a movie where you don't know where you're going, um, you, kind of an open-ended film that hasn't set up expectations of what's coming down the pike, then scenes of gazing can seem very boring and unfocused and you can lose the viewer. Corey's the same way. Guy rolls into town claiming to be someone he's not. You know, and, and you already know that as the audience. So that immediately creates tension. You know at some point that secret's going to come out and what's going to happen when it does. So that then creates, same thing. You have a trajectory, you're headed toward a confrontation. And again, it creates space. So that's particular to those films. I think often I've tried it in other situations where it has not been as successful maybe because it wasn't, the tension wasn't built in in that, in that same way. But I just like, for me, the, those, those moments of contemplation allow the audience to really consider the circumstances as opposed to, and hopefully it pulls you in. I mean, it's a big part of this kind of filmmaking. Those independent, smaller, quieter movies are about asking you to lean forward. It's a movie that wants to draw you in. Yeah. Whereas sometimes like Halloween that's coming out is a movie that kind of, it's a big bombastic slasher movie. It's a movie that comes at you um, as opposed to a movie that, ask you to come to it, which is what a lot of my other work does. But even in Halloween, there is um, there are those moments. And I think what makes this particular film very powerful, Halloween Kills, is that what I sort of had an agreement with the director, David Gordon Green, when we sat down to make this film together, you know, part of it for me was... Um, trying to find this balance of um, making the violence real. I, I wanted people to feel the violence. Often in these films, you know, slasher movies especially, um, people get very excited about the creativity of the kills and it's unlike, and it becomes a very distancing thing. Oh, look how that guy got a knife through his head or whatever. Yeah. And you're very distanced from it because you don't ever sit in the aftermath of that. And what I, what David and I talked about was making people, giving them what they think they want, which is this gory you know, kill. 
And then that's you get the immediate cathartic experience of, oh, wow, that was great. And then you stay on that to where it moves past the cathartic thing, the fake catharsis. It moves past that and then makes you actually think about it. And there are a couple of moments of contemplation in this film that he did that I just think are, are profound. And one involves, to be quite blunt, one involves a woman watching her husband get murdered. And it's absolutely brutal. And this is one of the more brutal films I've ever seen. I just watched it again the other night. Uh, and, and I say that in the best way. I'm, I'm extremely proud of it because that's what we set out to do. And that sounds may sound odd coming from a person <laughs> of faith. But I find great value in that because for this audience, the audience who loves those kinds of movies, they don't often have a, they don't, aren't often challenged to consider the violence, the real effects of violence in these kinds of films. And I think if nothing else, one thing that this film does is makes you consider that. And I find great value in that in the world, on top of the fact that it's a movie um, about evil. And, uh, and that's, that's my first entry point into it as a writer, uh, which I know people have a lot of trouble with asking. So people are going to see this movie and they're going to, they're going to be appalled. Some people will be very appalled by this film. Some people will be very excited by it. It's tough. It's a tougher movie than the second one, than the first one, uh, for sure. Um, but for me, I'll ask you a question. So if I came to you and I said to you, okay, which, which film do you think is more quote unquote appropriate for a, a Christian to write? A film that says evil is a real thing and cannot be defeated by man alone. Or a film that says might makes right. Well, you'd probably say, well, the first one, evil is a real thing, right? Well, that's Halloween Kills. And might makes right is essentially, with some exceptions, every superhero film ever made. That's right. Um, that's right. <laughs> so if I said, but if I said the reverse to you first, which is more appropriate for a Christian to write? The Avengers or Halloween kills, you say, oh, the Avengers, it's it's good, the good guys win, or whatever. That's the mistake of, that's conflating content for worldview. And I think that's a real problem in the people of faith, as both filmmakers and film watchers. Um, you, you, and look, I, I love superhero movies, and I've got three kids, you know, we watch them all the time. We watch them with considering the effects of it. And when you see one that goes against the grain, it's so refreshing. Recently, the one I saw that went against the grain was Wonder Woman 84. Did you see that? Yep. Mm -hmm. I thought it was fantastic because when's the last time you saw a film where the villain literally changes his whole mind at the end? Like he has a, he has a change of heart at the end of that film. And it's remarkable. And... For that genre of film, I found it to be remarkable. And, and what happens, of course, it gets released and critics crap all over it because whatever, it doesn't fit the mold. I don't know why. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and uh, we need more films like that that do that. Um, but people don't get it when they do. I don't know. People, they, the reviewers crap all over Halloween Kills at Venice. I don't think they're seeing the movie that we made. And who knows? Because they, they come in with their own expectations and you read those reviews and they're full of snark. And it's like, I get it. This is a sequel to, you know, to a, 
it's literally the 12th Halloween film that's ever been made. So I mean, I get, I get the whatever, but it doesn't mean I, as a, as a, as a writer, I don't try to give it everything I've got to make it. And I don't want to build it up and make it sound like some spiritual event, but I think there's a lot more substance than people would give it credit for. There's literally a line in the movie where Jamie Lee Curtis says, this is a spiritual battle. His words are said in the movie. And um, no, I don't know when's the last time you heard that in a slasher movie. So it's, it's, I mean, it's, so it's, it's, I think it's got great value in the world. That's why I um, feel very proud of, of having, having been a part of it. Well, I, you know, like I, I'm a fan of the horror genre. I'm not uh, a fan of um, necessarily, you know, all, <laughs> right. all, all the films in the horror genre, but uh, I do like, the Halloween films. I particularly enjoyed. I don't know what are they calling the. I can't remember. They're not calling them reboots or reimagined. They're kind of continuations. No, it's like, yeah, right? it's just sort of because they kind of the just new, ignored like a new trilogy. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's, it's like they took the first Halloween that yeah, just the very made, first one, and then and then they the, skipped the, all the rest. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, by the way, did you get did you get to meet John Carpenter? Not yet. No, I haven't met Carpenter yet. I think I'll meet him uh, at the premiere next week. Um, But I I really enjoyed the, you know, um, the last one. And and uh, you're right. These kind of films, they're 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 um, they have become they they, when the first one came out, they weren't event films. But now horror has become so popular around the world. It's uh, these kind of films have become event films. They become um, really big films that have to have the jump scares, have to have the, mm. the moment, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, what I hear you saying is you as a screenwriter and an artist and a person of faith, you wanted to come in and you wanted to try to um, bring a your voice, your perspective to that genre. And you yeah. sat down with the director and you, you were like, I, this is, this is, uh, the idea of violence being real is something that a lot of horror films, that's the last thing they would want to investigate. It's the last thing yeah. they'd want to kind of grapple with and, and deal yeah. with. And, and so I think that sounds, I mean, that sounds intriguing to me. I, I know, yeah. I don't know how many people, but to me, I actually am really looking forward to, to, to seeing that. And I, I, I fully anticipate being, disturbed by it but that's kind of part of what we're supposed to do as storytellers that kind of goes a little bit deeper right to like you know people can pick on genre they can pick on you know like you talk about worldview versus content but i mean really so much of what we're talking about scott is at the same time and i know you you think about this a lot and, and and the subject matters is is why are we so convinced that when something goes through a faith lens or it gets filtered through the faith lens, it has to come across, it has to come out on the other side for lack of a better term, childish. It has to, it has to be safe. It has to yeah. be safe is the safe is a better word. It's okay. the right it, word it has to be I think that's safe. What you're saying. Yeah. And, and yeah, I don't know sure. where that came from. I have no idea. I mean, have you read the Bible? I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't, I really don't get it, man. And it's, it's, I mean, I understand how it's, how it's, it's sort of, it's born out of a, out of a, like the remnants of Puritan culture, the remnants of evangelical Puritan cult- culture. It's just, it's just what, um, 
it's an and it's an unwillingness to engage with the ugliness of life, and that's not what Jesus did, and that's not what the great writers of faith did. I mean, have you ever read "A Good Man Is Hard to Find"? It's it's yeah. a truly yeah. disturbing piece of fiction, and and because you you want because the because it asks you to sympathize empathize with this killer, this serial killer, who has. <clears throat> who understands the truth in a way, and that's the beauty of that story and the beauty of so much of Flannery's work yeah. is the quote unquote evil person understands the truth in a way that the pious self-righteous Christian never will or can't until, and that's why it's got one of the great lines of like, she, she would have been a good woman if there was someone there to stick a gun in her face every second of her life. <laughs> it's not until you... Love it. Are faced with your death that you let go of the pretenses sometimes. Drop your guard. Drop. She cares about what she looks like. And then she's a proper good Christian woman. And like, and he doesn't care. She's gonna die anyways. And it's not until you, and she's she realizes that that she says, You're just like, we're just like I'm I'm just like you. You're my you're my son. Like we're we're your family, we're the same. It's a beautiful revelatory story to me. And, and it's br- at the same time, it's brutal. Absolutely brutal. And, uh, and but he has that he understands the truth. He just can't. He just can't bring himself to it. He says it because he can't he doesn't know because he he doesn't know. He says, if I just wish I knew Jesus messed it all up. I just wish I knew if it was real, because if it is real, there's nothing for any of us to do except bow down right now and do what he asks. And if it's not real and none of this matters and there's nothing to do but kill people and burn down a house, which is what I'm going to do because I don't know because I wasn't there. And it's the great challenge of faith. And it's the, and that's a, um, it's just why that's, that's the greatest story ever written. And in my opinion, and and because it's just, every time I read it, I get something else out of it. I see some detail. It's so subtle. It's so subtle that you have to read it three times, even before picking up any of this really. I mean, like it's so, my daughter just studied it in her 10th grade English class, which I was totally shocked and couldn't be happier about. Wow. And she and I got to dig into my wife's a teacher. I was a terrible student. So I never get to help my kids with homework. They're like, get away, dad. You don't want you to, this was the one time I was like, I know this. And so we sat down and we worked on it and we read it a couple of times and it was just in helping her excavate some of these truths. Um, was really fun, but it's and, it, and reading it again, it just revealed itself to me in a new way, just how just how incredible it is. And that's what I aspire to is to really um, have that kind of nuance, subtlety, depth, and 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 unexpected, because I think in a more sort of a safer Christian story would just have everyone, everything be okay at the end everyone figure it out and he repents his ways that's what would happen in uh you know it would make you know 100 million dollars at the box office because we don't want to have to think that life is, doesn't work out like we want it to work out we want to give our we're not we want to come to faith and then our cancer gets healed and we get a new truck and all the good stuff happens to us and, and when movies say that kind of stuff to me there it's not just bad storytelling it's a it's it's a lie and so because it's a lie it's anti-faith it's anti-christian at least absolutely so absolutely i want to be honest doesn't mean you can't have a happy ending although i 
I don't like happy endings. I mean, my, my, I mean, I, I, I have a hard time. I've been asked to write them a couple of times. It's very difficult for me to write happy endings. Um, and I, I, I ask myself, why can't you do it? Do you just think you're too good for it, or what, what? Why can't you just write a happy ending? And I really, really asked myself and thought about it. And I think at the core of it, what, what, if we stories with happy endings um, are saying something about the world and our ability to fix it. And if, and if we as humans were really capable of happy endings, then why did we need a savior? Yeah. That's what I came down to. So I think that's why I like these more cautionary tales and, and stories that end when, where everything goes to hell and so <laughs> falls yeah. apart because that's usually more truthful and honest to, to life. We, we talk a lot in Act One about redemptive storytelling and the confusion with that term, mm-hmm. that, the understanding of the the story does that doesn't mean that the story gets redeemed at the end with some sort of happy ending it just means that redemption comes to a character and by the way sometimes that is death sometimes that is the 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 wages of sin is death and uh um, a movie about that <laughs> yeah exactly and so you you uh, it, it's not uh, to the greater point of our discussion is these are, I think when people are, you know, the question comes is how do I communicate to uh, someone who's hard of hearing? Well, I have to scream. Yeah. You know, why are you screaming? Why are you screaming? Well, because my audience is hard of hearing that this genre horror and, and thriller yeah. and all the, it, the, the ones that people maybe go, Oh, we should Christians should stay away from those genres in a sense though, they allow us to deal with the themes that we want to deal with the ones that actually matter to us. And it, and it, mm-hmm. think, and, about it. think about it. People of faith like really dug in their heels and, and told scary stories and wrestled with, 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 with evil in a way where, you know, it, you feel the cost of it and the effects of it. And you also, you know, have some, and you just, you, you validate it. And that's really what the, the genre does. And that's now and I was, because I was never a horror fan either. I mean, and and I, for a long time, until I met Scott Derrickson, really, I mean, he really um, sort of gave me a new perspective on horror and the value of it as a genre. I was just a straight drama guy. I just wanted to tell Southern stories about slow-talking people, you know, and, uh, and Scott really helped me see in a new way because the horror genre is the only genre that it treats evil as a real thing. And as a, you know, and where you, you enter into the conversation with that being a sort of an established given. And uh, that, that allows you a lot of, of power and, and as a storyteller and a lot of, of, of places you can go. And so gaining that perspective and seeing it that way really opened up doors for me. And that's why I pursued this path a lot. And I've um, I found it to be very, fulfilling. I mean, look, we can, I'm not saying it's always because <clears throat> the worldview thing, content is not nothing. And like, there are like, you know, it's like, it's not like everything in Halloween kills content wise. I, I think is, you know, I, I agree with it, but it's, but ultimately that's the director's choice. And I know that I did what I can to support his vision by giving it substance. In some ways it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like I look at it like when I'm working in this well, on bigger movies, um, 
it's sort of like when you when your kids are little and you grind up broccoli and put it in the applesauce you know, so they can't really taste it, but they're getting their broccoli. My, my kids might listen to this podcast. Uh, uh, so I kind of look at it. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes I, I get to go write a movie like the quarry, which very directly and overtly deals with issues of redemption and forgiveness and God. And sometimes I write Halloween kills, which is, which where it's where I can sort of give substance and make something like violence feel more real and make you think about it. And that's to me more like the broccoli and the applesauce thing. And sometimes it's just to go work with um, a director like uh, David Gordon Green or Gore Verbinski, um, you know, or, or whoever the many married folks I've been able to work with, Derrickson, you know, and, and Nicholas Winding Ruffin and these guys that I've, done films with and who I get, I get to spend time with this very creative, very influential person. And, um, you know, I think I, I can influence them or, or not when I influence them. I, I, I enjoy spending time with them because that's building a relationship because then it it's um, and hopefully, you know, we'll have an opportunity for a beer or a cup of coffee and, and in that whole long process and, and we can talk about life and build a relationship and 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 bring some depth maybe into their world that wasn't there before. And so, uh, you know, so there's all different reasons why I might take a job, why how what I might feel is the success of it, um, you know, or not how I how I might judge it, how I might qualify or quantify what it's it's, it's you know its value is. Um, and some, sometimes that's never on the screen. It's just about relationships and sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's big. So I think we have to be open to where our careers take us and find, find those places to, 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 to do our work. I mean, and that took me a while to get there too. In fact, our mutual dear friend, Claire Sarah was the one who was like, um, I remember she gave me a hard time one day because I was like, this is around that evening sun time. And I so I made this movie and it was exactly what I wanted to do, tell a Southern story. People liked it. It got some awards or whatever. And, and, uh, I thought I was going to go get to make, do that every time and just go do that the rest of my life and make these stories. And, and, and she was like, you know, you can also do a lot of good in these, in these big stories too. And you can also, you know, she's like, she's like, I think she was doing Curious George or something at the time. And she was like, you know, you can do some good stuff in Curious George too. And I hadn't really thought about it that way. And I started thinking about it more. And um, and then I realized like there are other opportunities. Like I don't just have to tell my stories. I can help other people tell their stories and um and add a little bit of grace and substance to them and often it becomes even better because of that i'll give you an example which is rectify yeah i wanted so to rectif- talk i wanted to talk to you about rectify rectify yeah. ray mckinnon creates this show ray was in my first movie and he produced it so we had a relationship five years later he calls me and asked me to come work on his show rectify and um that show often gets cited by people as having like one of the best portrayals of, 
a Christian character ever on TV. And I would agree with that. Yeah, the it's reason, one. Of, it's one of the most highly, you know, certainly within our circle, uh, the yeah. Act One circle, and just like people of faith that work in the business and things like that. Yeah. It, it's just a, it's a very highly not not seen by a lot of people because a lot of people didn't have the Sundance, yeah. you know, like, but very yeah. highly regarded, wonderful TV show. I, I I loved it. And here's the secret sauce to that. And the reason that character, that Christian character in that show, Tawny, is so authentic is because, especially over the last three seasons of the show, um, the principal five of us who worked on that in that writer's room, our writer's room consisted of this. A Protestant, that'd be me, uh, a lapsed Catholic, a non-practicing Jew, a secular humanist, and a stone cold atheist. Those were the five of us in that room. Wow. And so the result of that is that no, no BS made it through. No propaganda made it through. If Tawny was going to make a choice or say something, and it had to be authentic to who she was as a human being. Yes, I had some, perhaps some authority in terms of the like kind of the language she might use or how she might think about things based on her perspective and her point of view. But at the end of the day, it has to be true. And the way it becomes true is it goes through this gauntlet of those other eyes. And that creates, and, and they were refined iron sharpening iron. I mean, that's the refining fire of going through that gauntlet of other perspectives. Is and she comes out on the other side a real person. If there were five, you know, Christians in that room instead, I would venture to bet that she would probably end up a lot less relatable to people, a lot less authentic. Um, not always. It's not. It's not generalization, of course. But like, if I know for a fact it was because. So we had long conversations about different moments. I would try to pitch something. And so, and, and also their reactions would reveal to me when I was trying to pitch an idea that I wanted to get through versus like the honest, authentic character reaction or decision in that moment. Um, and you have to have those voices, you know, helping each other and chipping in. And, and that's why. And so I think that's a big problem with like um, probably in any kind of film where you just have one set of voices telling a story. But I think to, to this conversation, Christian, quote unquote, Christian movies are made by people often who often think the same way and they're from the same church even yeah. and like they all have the same perspective. Yeah. And so it's going to, it comes off more often than not in my experience as, as a, as a, a sermon a propaganda. Um, and Therefore, it lacks authenticity, and therefore, it fails to connect with people outside, and um, often, and it fails to connect with me. And if I, I and I think it makes our jobs harder, frankly. I think recti- I think one of the things that I really also enjoyed about Rectify that I think a lot of people connect, and but I think it also to you and in, in your other work too. I think the best, maybe the best compliment I can give you, Scott, with uh, your work is it, um, especially as it relates to rectify and that evening sun and, and the quarry is your, a lot of your work feels lived in, hmm. right? Like it feels like a world lived in. It doesn't feel 
fake and glossy and I feel like I live in a, I feel like I'm watching a lived in real world. I think that's what a lot of people related to with, with rectify even, especially. And, yeah. Um, but I, but I see that reflected in, in a lot of your, your other work. And I, and I think it's because of maybe the nature of the way you, you tend to um, really ground everything that you're doing, which is why I'm excited to see. Mm-hmm. following kills but yeah i know you didn't direct that but, but as a writer but when it comes to your um kind of your aesthetic mm-hmm. uh, i'm curious how do you do you approach writing and directing in some sort of vastly different way is there a uh because some projects you write and direct some projects you just write uh, I, I don't actually mm-hmm. i don't know of anything that maybe that you've directed that you haven't written but um, do when you approach writing versus directing versus mm-hmm. writing and directing, do you approach it differently at all? Do you have a um, uh, a way yeah. of of going through the process that is that is different at all, or is it the same pretty much? I don't think so. I think it's the same. I'm still approaching it visually. I think honestly, a lot a reason a lot of directors like working with me is is that I'm writing the script as a director, so I'm. It doesn't mean I'm writing it on the page, but I'm painting a picture, and I'm also extra, I'm also extrapolating from them their vision for it. So I I can talk their language because I'm a director. So um, it just creates a shorthand, and and I can approach, and I'm looking at the scenes the same way they would, and writers would behoove themselves to learn about more about directing and and, and really understand filmmaking in a deeper way. Make your own movies. Because even short films or movies in your iPhone, because understanding how to work the camera and how to move the camera and what that does, it greatly impacts your writing and understanding how to create action into exposition. You know, to like have someone moving and doing something while they're taught, while they're giving their info dump is like, a, it's as simple as the way to just change up a, 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 a fat, slow exposition scene to like give it some movement. I mean, simple things like that, you only learn by doing. And until you've gotten a, a script and tried to direct it and realized you wrote like two pages of speech and the guy's sitting there, you're like, well, how do I make this interesting? So, you know, the next time you'll write it, you'll know to put it on its feet and have them carrying something from there to there, but make that action actually help progress the story and, and you're burying that exposition inside of that. Those kind of things. I, I skip a lot of, um, you know, we skip a lot of revisions maybe because I'm already getting to there early and that, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I'm always approaching it as a director, even if I'm writing for somebody else. And um, so, yeah, I really, I really, you know, I, um, I think it's really important to care about the page. I mean, I really, you know, uh, people really like to read my scripts because they're fun to read because the pages, um, it's a well, it looks good. It's just, it's funny to think that's an important thing, but it is yeah. the aesthetics of literally, literally how your script reads. I mean, this is everything from like underlining your slug lines to like not having any hangers, which is something I learned an actual one early. Like, like if you have an, a line of action, 
that goes across and there's one word that goes down to the next line, then, then change that sentence so that it all fits on one line. It just looks cleaner. Like these are simple things that create clean lines on your page, especially as a young person starting out, a young writer, um, having a script that like having lots of white space on your page, like yep. moving people down through the page and working your page break so that the the last line on the page break beckons the the turn of the page so that you so you 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 uh you know you you page page hump so you know you mess with the page <laughs> a little bit to like get that line up to where she said where the last line says she opens the door and dash dash oh and what and so you have to turn the page as opposed to like so you can like make everything feel propulsive move like that's something that's that I just and that's a visual element as well. It's part of like the visual aesthetics of the page, and also it relates to your story because it like helps you streamline your action, all that. It's it's these are important things, especially when you're getting started. People want to want to read a pleasing, easy to read script that looks nice. And and um, how many how know, many screenplays? How many screenplays have you do you think you've written uh, at this point in your career? Like not, now I'm not talking about the ones that have been made. I'm just saying a fully finished uh, screenplay. How many would you say at this know. point? That's a good question. Um, There's a point to my question. I just yeah, I don't know. 25? 45? Uh, 25, maybe. Wow. I don't know. And of, of the 25, uh, how many of them how many of them have, you know, are like sitting in sitting in your desk somewhere or on your hard drive that that, uh, well, let's see. I've got the, the Evening Sun and the Quarry <laughs> and Halloween. That makes 22 left. Uh, four of those will come out in the next couple of years. Firestarter and uh, uh, Cutting so, Stone you know. and Insidious. But so I don't know, 18. I mean, there's yeah. a bunch. And you're counting, and that's, and that's like not even counting TV pilots. And I mean, there's a whole bunch. That's not even that's counting not even TV. That's not even counting people. TV. Yeah. That's not even counting TV. Yeah. And and so my point to not. that, my point to that question is um, this whole going back to this kind of whole, and I think it's kind of a good way to start to wrap up our conversation is back to this whole idea of perseverance and patience yeah. is yeah. you've been, you've been working at this for years and the fruit of your labor. It's like, what, what's that saying? You know, he's an overnight sensation and, what is it? Uh, it took him 20 years to be an overnight 20 sensation. Years making or yeah, yeah, 20 years, yeah. Overnight sensation, 20 years in the making. Um, but in a sense, what what you are uh um what you are experiencing right now is is like the tip of the, like people don't see the iceberg underneath the water, they don't see right. all the the hard work of scripts that you worked really hard in that you believed in, and just either they either haven't found their day yet. Or they may never find their day, and um, but but you worked on them. You probably, I mean, you're talking about mm-hmm. what six six to twelve months of your life on each one of those scripts to some to some varying degree, right? Yeah. And so, um, so looking back at kind of where you've come from, and then kind of um, uh, to just advice for people who are listening to this, mm-hmm. um. What what do you want that aspiring writer who's maybe listening to this podcast and they're going, 
I, I think, I think I can do this. I think I have the ideas. I heard Scott talk about the 10 year thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, what advice do you have for them? Um, as a writer, yeah. what, what should they be writing? What should they be caring about? What, what do you, what should they be spending their time on? What is your right. advice for them to, uh, to, as they're beginning their career? Yeah. One, one thing I'd say is ask yourself a question. When I have free time, when I have two hours, what, what do I want to do? Um, and if your gut instinct is to go to a movie or read a book or read a screenplay or work on your own story or go dream about it, that's good. If it's to play video games or to watch reality television, um, you know, maybe ask yourself what that means. This is what we got to earlier. Like, do you have to do this? I even 20 years into this, I, I wake up thinking about movies. I go to sleep thinking about movies. The irony is that I don't watch very many movies. I have three kids. My life is, I have three teenagers. And so I, you know, I watch, if I watch one or two movies a week, that's a, I'm, that's huge. That's a huge victory for me. We have a family movie night on Sunday nights. We watch a movie every Sunday as a family. And I have a little movie club with each of my kids that I try once a week to get a movie in with them. That's one of the kids, you know, now we're in school. It's like high school, it's college. It's, there's no time. And, um, but I still think about it all the time. I love it. That's one thing. So if you're, again, understand your passion. The other thing is understand your, your true abilities. Be brutally honest with yourself about your talent. And the way you do that is to build a circle of writers around you who will be honest with you. And because I do believe that this is a last person standing town like there is if you have the perseverance to last then like and if you have the talent um that has been verified by other people besides yourself and you're willing to stick out these 10 years 12 years 15 years however long it takes um, i do believe that if you are good and you write a good script then you will build your circle uh, out wide enough through that those years that you will be able to get your script to someone who can do something with it, who can, someone of import, who can, who can, who can get it made or at least get you to the next step. Um, but that requires a real brutal honesty about um, how good am I and am I getting better? So writers groups are huge. I would find a writers group and I would have to imagine it's a little easier now because you can do it online and zoom and, but coming out of Act One, I had a writers group. Out of Act One, I've had three writers groups that were based in Act One. I think over the years, um, and out of one of those, I you know I, I met a person who I, I write with today, Bob Massey. So we still write together sometimes. Just sold a show. Um, so um, you know that's huge. And those writers in those early days were very honest. We critique each other's scripts. But to always be reading and critiquing others and to always be challenged to write your own, because what a writer's group does above anything else is give you a deadline and hold you accountable to that deadline. Accountability and uh, is huge and, and so necessary um, as you build up the skills of writing, as you build up the habits of writing. And that's just a necessary part of it is to have those habits ingrained and um it's super important. So it's just, 
it's like working out. It's like anything you want to do you, every day, you got to build those habits and you got to sit down at your computer. Now for me, well, the one, the one good thing I've learned that has been a game changer for my work in the last seven or eight years is that I started taking daily walks for um, three to five mile walks every day. And that is where I work out my story stuff. So I, I usually I get up in the morning early, five, between five and six, I get up in the morning and I spend a couple hours writing fresh. I, I love, that's my favorite time of day, 5 a.m., cup of coffee. No one's awake. House is dark. Um, that's my favorite time. I can just write. And then I'll write whatever was left over from the day before and I'll figure out what's next for the rest of the day. And then I'll go take my hour, hour and a half walk. And on that walk, I'll work out the scenes. There's a real value and lots of science behind it. It's this idea of being ambulatory. Walking opens up some part of your creative brain. Um, you're not distracted. I can't think of story stuff sitting at my computer, looking at a screen. I got to get up and pace. But I walk across Pasadena, one, one end to the other, basically. Um, and I work out all my scenes for the, all my story, big story stuff, the movements of the story and some of the scene work. I speak it into my voice recorder on my phone. And then I come back home and sometimes I'll have 10 minutes. Sometimes I'll have 45 minutes of stuff on there. And I'll transcribe it and that'll give me my stuff for the day. And then I take that and I drop it in and I work on those scenes. And so and the cycle goes, the cycle continues. And so creating those kind of habits, but 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 walking to write is really a, a huge one. That that's uh, really, that's really good. I love that. That's really, really. And so then my last thing, um, mm-hmm. thing is then for the directors. If yeah. if you're an aspiring director, uh, because, there, you know, the thing that I always say to my friends that are aspiring directors, people, is I'm like, it's the toughest job because you can have multiple writers on a project. You can have multiple producers on a project. Heck, you might even have multiple editors on a project. But unless you're like a directing team, it's uh, there's just fewer right. directing jobs. You are competing with oh, yeah. every other director. It's just, it's tough. And so how writers are writing before they're writing, right? Mm-hmm. What are directors doing before they're directing? What advice do you have for aspiring directors? <laughs> they're writing. I believe all good directors write and um, or have written at some point. And because uh, just as a writer, you need to learn the craft of directing. You need to learn the craft of writing as a director. And because you can also create your own material. Um, the other thing I would say is um, I think there's a lot of value in painting or taking still photographs. Um, it gets back to this thing that uh, Robert Bresson, the French filmmaker, said um, that our goal as filmmakers is not to make beautiful images, but necessary images. And when you are forced to paint, when you paint, you are forced to choose what is necessary to tell the story of that painting, not just what is beautiful. In fact, the beauty can often distract from the necessary. So learning to, to make necessary images is really, um, is really important. And, uh, and the beautiful thing, you know, technology allows us much flexibility these days to go out and make your movies, but work on telling a story with the camera, work on, you know, composition and, um, 
juxtaposition, editing, all these things, all the, the many, many, many tools of the filmmaker, but, um, and learn how to work with actors, take an acting class, um, you know, learn like David Fincher is, is, is famous for being able to, he knows everyone's job better than they do because he spent years and years and years on film sets learning the craft. And um, that's important too. So uh, as the leader, the more you know, the more respect you will earn, um, the more people will listen and work with you and then to create that collaborative experience, uh, which is so important. Love it. Thank you, Scott. This has been a fantastic conversation. I hope that people go out and after hearing this podcast, and I hope they go out and see your new film, Halloween Kills, which opens um, on October 15th. 15th. I'd be remiss to end any act one conversation without saying the words Krzysztof Kieslowski, which I haven't said today. who is the greatest filmmaker to ever live and whose film blue is my favorite yes. film of all time. So I just had to say that out loud because <laughs> it's in my contract. <laughs> hey, what I'll do is I'll bring you back sometime and we'll do an entire podcast on the colors trilogy. That's what we'll oh, do. Man, that would be incredible. <laughs> I, will, I will be there. You tell me when. <laughs> uh, actually, that would be a great podcast. Um, but this has been great, Scott. I I'm so appreciative of you and I'm so appreciative of just your time and, you're always so gracious and kind to act one. And to me personally, I just always enjoyed your friendship and man, and just uh, wish you all the success in the world with everything that's going on. And I, I love what you're doing. I'm, I, I am a, it's fun to be friends with someone that you're a fan of, <laughs> you know, like where you watch yeah. the work and you're like, man, I love this. And uh, we didn't really talk a lot about the quarry. Uh, I do hope people check it out. It came out last year video on demand or on demand because it, yeah. because of the pandemic, it didn't get released in theater. So I do hope, um, people get a chance to see that film. It's a fantastic film as well, as well nice. as that evening sun, but Halloween kills, of course, I'm excited. Uh, and, and, you know, no spoilers, uh, I, you know, we can't <laughs> get any, have any spoilers, but, uh, I'm sure big, exciting things happen. Cause there's a third yeah. one coming after that. That's one. Right. Um, Hey, we always close these, uh, by saying a, a prayer. Would you uh, be okay with, I said a prayer for Please. you, my friend. Okay. Please. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you so much for Scott. Thank you for just this great conversation. Thank you for just all the wisdom and insight and clarity. Uh, thank you for just his passion for great stories. Thank you for his passion for storytellers. And uh, thank you for his friendship to Act One. And God, I just uh, pray a blessing upon his marriage, uh, his family, his relationships. Uh, God, I pray all these projects he's got coming up, I just pray um, that you would um, uh, just give him uh, just your sense of creativity and presence. And uh, God, I just pray that um, you would just uh, continue to provide opportunities for Scott to tell great stories that challenge us, that make us think, that um, make us gaze and, uh, and ponder and reflect. And I uh, just thank you for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast, celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood. Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.
Bye. Bye.